Let's play a game off the top. This is the favorites game. Now, sometimes I tell you to pretend like you're from Alabama or Texas, so this is one of those moments. I want you to be non-Guelfish. Okay, so if you smell like patchouli, pretend you don't, just for a second. <laughs> it's crazy. My wife and I go to the market every Saturday morning. And I'm like, oh, this is, this, this is Guelph. They kind of look at me like I don't fit in. I don't wear Birkenstocks. I don't make my own clothes. And I wear Old Spice. Eventually going to find me out. They're like, you're that yuppie preacher from up north. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay, it's a favorites game. You ready? I'm going to say, what's your favorite? I'm going to say something. I want you to shout it out. Okay, I don't want you to think about too much. You don't have to. I understand some of y'all can't leave Guelph even in your mind. I understand. But if you're in the good mood today, feel free to join me. I'm going to say mine after you say yours, though. So uh, you say yours first, and then I will uh, join in. So we're clear? Favorites game. All right. What's your favorite meal? Oh, I heard spaghetti. There you go. Chinese food. My favorite meal is spaghetti. I heard breakfast. I heard pizza. Spaghetti's my favorite meal. Spaghetti with meatballs. My wife makes these incredible meatballs. She's Italian. What are you going to do? It's just the best. Spaghetti's my favorite meal. Okay, here's the next one. Now look, if this puts you off a little bit, welcome to the 90s, Mr. Bunks. What's your favorite beer? Good, okay, cool. I heard none, which is right. I get that. I receive that. I heard Heineken. Steam whistle's my favorite, though. I'm so boring. Wherever I go, I'm like, do you have steam whistle? If you are a person who enjoys beer, and you know that monks invented beer? So like Jesus people invented beer, which is pretty cool. I know, receive it. It's true, though, it's true. Everywhere I go, I just, if they got steam whistle, that's my thing. So if, if you're with that, you should try steam whistle, especially if it's on tap. It's fantastic. What's your favorite movie? Cool, I heard Talladega Nights from my son. I'll keep working on that, though. I heard Shawshank Redemption, which is excellent. Somebody said Die Hard, which is, I'm like, we're in church. Everybody loves that movie. It stands up, actually. I watched it recently with my kids. It was like, well, all right. It's about that custom, though, right? You're like, oh, Lord, all the 80s and 90s movies are much uh, fouler than I remembered when I was a kid. My favorite movie, also with a few, you know, specific language choices, is The Goonies and Back to the Future. Those are my two favorites. If I had to go to an island, take two movies with me, that's it. Back to the Future, Goonies. In fact, I like them so much, we watch them multiple times a year, every year. Like, we just sit down, we're like, it's a Goonies night. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's the best. All right, this one's fun. What's your favorite international city? Paris. I heard Paris, New York, Shanghai. Shanghai. Someone's been to Shanghai? Shanghai. Chang. Ah, I want to go to Thailand. Other favorite international cities? Barcelona. Barcelona. Stockholm. Stockholm. Oh, I'd like to go there. My favorite is predictable. Jerusalem is my favorite international city. It's where I grew up. Still smells the same, you know. It's cool. I was back there quite a bit the last few years. And it still smells like the city I grew up in. There is nothing like Jerusalem on a Saturday morning. It's the Sabbath. The sun's coming up. All the buildings look like they're gold. Did you know that they actually is a city ordinance that all the buildings in Jerusalem have to have stone cut to refract the light to make Jerusalem look like Jerusalem the golden? It's my favorite city.
All right, your favorite team. Montreal? Come on now. Oh, I respect it. I get it. Patriots, your favorite team? All right, my favorite team. My favorite team is the Centennial Spartans. Let's go. Well, we're going to dominate the league this year, let me tell you. I coach the football team there, just in case you're our guest today. You know what this crazy preacher's talking about. Last one. Your favorite vacation spot. Cool. Oh, right. Okay. Dunks Bay, Mexico, Florida, Italy. Oh, Italy's awesome. Hawaii. I've never been. I'd like to go. My favorite vacation spot is Muskoka. I've been going there my whole life, and it still smells the same. It's like Jerusalem. It must be holy. Water tastes the same. Trees smell the same. It's great. I keep bumping into my friends, though, from our teenage years, and they all got fat. It's crazy. (laughs) My wife's like, I can't believe you just said that. I didn't say any names, though. I didn't say any names. (laughs) What's the point? It's going to be fun. Y'all in a good mood today. I like it. What's the point? We all have favorites. We all have favorites. God does, too. And it's you. Oh, that'll preach. I don't even have to preach the sermon. We all have favorites. God does too. And it's you. Woo, celebrate Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence... Let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You visited me by night. You have tested me and you'll find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words, word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. That's going to be good in a minute when we get to it. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity with their mouths. They speak arrogantly. They've now surrounded our steps. They've set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Man, again, I feel like I hardly even need to preach. Okay, here's the big idea. Psalm 17. It's going to show us the results of God playing favorites. All right, if you're a note taker, it's the big idea of Psalm 17. Psalm 17 today is going to show you the results of God playing favorites. First result, you don't got to justify yourself. 
Okay, the first result of God playing favorites is you are going to realize that you don't have to justify yourself. Look at verses 1 through 5. Listen to it carefully. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me and you'll find nothing. I've proposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the works of man, by the word of your lips I've avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. First thing I notice about verses 1 through 5, it sounds impossibly Jewish. All right? Exactly. It's impossible. It's impossibly Jewish. I read this. <clears throat> this does not comfort me unless it leads me to Jesus. Because King David here in his prayer, we're kind of eavesdropping on his prayer life is saying a bunch of things that I know from studying were not true about him, let alone, they're not true about me. That makes two out of two, so if it's true about King David and true about me, it's probably true about you also. Can't justify yourself. Now, you will have tried, though. You will have tried to save yourself many times throughout your life. Somebody show me a hand. You ever try to save yourself? Testify Right? You're like, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better. New Year's is a problem, right? Every New Year's, you think, I'm going to make some resolutions. I'm going to change my life forever. And then come March, it's over. You're like, dang it. Now, look, some people are highly disciplined and organized, and they can do some good things. But even the most organized and disciplined among us will eventually reach a point where all of our efforts fall short. That's a dark moment, isn't it? When you hit that wall where you're like... I hit my limit here. I, I got nothing else. You ever got to that place? It's not a good place. Like, that's it. I, I tap out. See, there's a difference between Judaism and Christianity. There's a difference between Christianity and the way of the world. What Judaism says, it says, be better. Be better. You know what the way of our world says? The spirit of the age, if you will. Just be. Just be. Be yourself. Right? Just be. That's not Christian, though. You know what Christianity says? Yeah, just be with Jesus. Just be with Jesus. You need to unpack Psalm 17, not with a Jewish mindset, not with a worldly mindset, you need to unpack it with Jesus, top of mind. I'm going to tell you about Jesus in a minute. Maybe you never heard the story. But if you got it, if you understand the Coles notes of who Jesus is and what he did, what that means, then hold that in your heart now as we unpack the rest of the song. With Jesus, top of mind, here, verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. From lips free of deceit. I notice about this is that David longs for justice. So do you. Isn't it true? Isn't it guaranteed to get you upset when you experience or suffer a miscarriage of justice? 
Somebody does something to you that's wrong that you don't deserve. It makes you upset, doesn't it? You have this reaction, don't you? That's not right. We all want justice. We all know that something's wrong with the world. You know why you know that something's wrong with the world? Because you're made in God's image and likeness. Literally in the Hebrew, you're made in his tselem. Tselem in modern Hebrew is the root word for matzlema, which is the word for camera. Literally like God took a picture of himself and you're the result. You're made in his image, you're made in his likeness, you're made in his reflection. That's what the root word means in and of itself. Tselem means reflection. You are made in God's reflection. Genesis 1.27 tells us this. Because you're made in his reflection, there's at least some genetic memory built into you of the way things were meant to be. That's why you can make a beautiful garden. Because your ancestors lived in one. Ever wonder about that? Why we garden? I know there's sociological reasons for it, rooted in the monarchy. I get it. I know a God who's bigger than the King of England. I know we have a queen presently. I was thinking about the Middle Ages. And that God loved gardens so much, it's in a garden that he put our first parents. We remember it. It's why you want justice. It's why you know something's wrong with the world, because you are made in God's reflection. You're also his favorite... That's why you know the world is broken. It's because you're his favorite that you can, if you work at it a little bit, live with authenticity. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Wouldn't it be nice to stop playing? Wouldn't it be nice to stop deluding yourself? Wouldn't it be nice to stop feeling the constant pressure to pretend like everything's fine? We tell that, you know, putting our, we call that putting our best foot forward. Really, it's deceitful. Pretending like we're fine when we're not. Pretending like we're good when we're broken. Especially Christians are guilty of this. Like, we have to defend the gospel by pretending to live an awesome life. Better to just be honest. Because you're his favorite, so you can live an authentic life. You don't have to delude yourself or pretend otherwise. You need help. I need help. The world needs help. And that help comes from God. Look at verses 2 through 3. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me and you'll find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Help comes from where? According to David's prayer, from God's Presence. David clearly believes that God sees him. Let your eyes behold the right. If help comes from God's presence, what would be the smartest thing for us to do? Get as close to him as possible. So what could you do this week to get and then stay close to Jesus. Because we drift, right? 
We drift downstream. Wait a minute, I was upstream a minute ago. Yeah, I know. Take a paddle, get to work. Jesus, hang on. Here I come, Lord. <laughs> and then you realize he's in the back paddling. You thought you were in the back. You look back, there's Jesus. What's up? Keep paddling. <laughs> Keep going. Stay close to Jesus. Why? Well, if you want help, though. Because help comes from the presence of God. He sees you. You've not gone unnoticed. So the second you feel this week bereft and alone, rebuke it. Because the preacher told you God sees you. Why did a preacher say that? Because preachers saw it in the Bible. King David said it. King David was God's friend. You've not gone unnoticed, contrary to popular opinion. And interestingly, David knows that God is to him. Do you ever feel like God's testing you? It's annoying, right? You're like, I got this. Do you ever feel that way? Is it just me? You're like, I, I learned this lesson already, Lord. <laughs> I know you didn't. <laughs> no, no, but I learned it, though. I'm good. No, you're not. No, really, like, you go test somebody else. I'm good. <laughs> no, you know, he ain't good. He's trying you. He's testing you. Now, here's where David is Jewish, and we're not. You'll try me, you'll test me, and you will find nothing. Every Christian reader says, as if. <laughs> David is wonderful because he's wretched and glorious. Like us, he's dust and divinity. Like us, he's a friend of God because God is friendly. As a Christian, we read this, you will test me, you will try me and find nothing. We say God finds nothing the implication, of course, is nothing crooked, nothing evil, nothing unrighteous. God finds nothing only because of Jesus. This is where the gospel comes in. I told you, I'll tell you about Jesus. Jesus is God the Son made flesh, who became a man in an event known as the Incarnation. God the Son stepped into human history, fully God and fully man, God in a body. Awesome. Lived among us, eating, drinking, talking, making friends. Grew up in Nazareth, which is a podunk nowhere town in northern Israel. Learned his father's trade. He was a home builder. So if you build homes, you're biblical. In fact, you do what Jesus did. It's awesome. What would Jesus do? He would build houses. Just a normal guy, except he wasn't. He's fully God, fully man. God in a body. Lived a perfect life, never sinned once. Most importantly, fully and perfectly fulfilled the will of God, his Father. And at the apex of history, in the fullness of time, the Bible tells us this story. Jesus Christ offered up his life, dying on a cross, in your place for your sin. Why is the cross so important? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. And you know this. Anytime you sin against somebody or somebody sins against you, something dies in that relationship. Now take that concept writ large, and we understand the barest fraction of God's approach to sin. He's altogether holy, altogether righteous and good. In fact, he must punish sin. It so offends his holiness. He's the one who says the wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, he kills animals to fashion clothes to cover them. 
the first blood sacrifice. And I know as enlightened Guelphites, we don't like the concept of blood sacrifice, but it's all throughout the Bible. Why? As a covering for sin. As God saying, I will restrain myself for now. Until the fullness of time when God the Son should become a man to suffer and die once for all on the great cross of Calvary. Because he's God, he's big enough to take the sins of the world and to pay the penalty for all of our sin for all time. Fully God, fully man. Suffers and dies in your place for your sin. But because he's God, he doesn't stay dead. He rises again the third day, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, and death forever. Hangs out with his friends afterwards. But a month later, ascends to the Father's right hand, sits down, where even now he's interceding for you. He's your cheering section. The consequence of what Jesus did on the cross is that when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, if you're one of Jesus' people, he sees Jesus' goodness. Because he already looked at your badness on Jesus when he hung on the cross. In the great exchange, as C.S. Lewis describes it, as Jesus hangs on the cross, your badness goes to him, his goodness comes to you. It's a great trade. So for all those who are now in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. When the Father looks on you, he sees the righteousness of God the Son. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Psalm 103, 12. This is beautiful because now in light of Jesus, the second half of verse 3 through verse 5 moves from being legalistic to devotional. Hear it that way. Not as legalistic, but as devotional. Second half of verse 3 through verse 5. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So not to justify myself, but as an act of worship, I have purposed that my heart will not transgress. Do you see the difference? As Christians, we don't cast aside the Scriptures but we read, interpret, understand, and apply the Scriptures with Jesus at the head. So not in a vain attempt at self-justification, but as an act of worship, I have purposed that my heart will not transgress. Listen to this and think of Jesus. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. What is Jesus called in Scripture? He's called the word that issues from the lips of the Father, the divine Logos, by the word of the lips of God, I have avoided the ways of the violent because of Jesus. You're good because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus is doing in my heart, I have held fast to his paths. My feet have not slipped because of Jesus. Because you're the apple of his eye, my friends, you don't have to justify yourself. But remember, he's your only hope. Look at verses 6 through 9. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. 
Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge, from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Notice who he calls upon. I call upon you. The question for us is this. Where have we been going for help these days? Are you trying to save yourself? Or are you waiting for God to incline his ear to you and hear you? I hate and also respect and love that it's a two-part process here. Not only are we waiting for him to hear us, we're waiting for him to incline his ear towards us, like to notice us, and then to hear. I don't know about you, but I find this difficult. Waiting on God, in fact, for me, is the hardest thing. I lost something precious recently. And I've been flailing around trying to save myself from the pain of this loss. It got so bad last week that my wife had to sit me down and talk some sense into me. She did it delicately and kindly. But she helped me, though, by pointing out the fact that I'm kind of flailing around like a half-drowned squirrel. She's like, you you need to stop it. And the words of my sweet wife reminded me of the words of God to me two weeks earlier where he spoke in his kindness and said, it's already taken care of. You see, the problem is, God speaks from his omniscience. He knows everything that is. So when he speaks to us personally, when he speaks to us through his word, when he speaks to you now through his servant, he's speaking from the context of his omniscience. He knows everything that is, but I can't see it yet. How about those reflexes? I'm doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after Jesus' resurrection. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas is thinking, oh no. Right? Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I need to repent and believe God for a miracle. Maybe you do too. And I am talking a miracle. Look at verses 7 through 9. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. The first part is the most important wondrously show your steadfast love. You know what wondrously show is in Hebrew? Hifla. You're thinking, great, what does that mean? Hifla comes from the Hebrew root pele, or pala, which means what? A miracle. Hifla. Do a miracle, God. And then the word chesed comes in. The word grace, the word mercy wondrously show, do a miracle of mercy, God. 
miraculously show me your steadfast love. Because you're his favorite, God's going to miraculously give you goodness you don't deserve. Here's the application. If you feel hard done by because you've lost something you thought you deserved, your real problem is not the poverty of loss. Your real problem is gospel poverty. I'll say that again, but it's echoing in your mind. My real problem is a gospel problem. You see, the truth is, I don't deserve anything but wrath and damnation. This is what the scripture testifies to when it says in Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Get a load of that. While we were yet sinners, in fact, in the Greek, I think it says while we were yet sinning. So we're like the woman caught in the act of adultery. We're like the Apostle Paul overseeing the stoning of Stephen. While we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. If you keep that in mind, that you don't deserve anything but wrath and death, because you're a sinner and you know it and I know it and so am I. If you keep in mind that while you were still sinning, Jesus Christ died for you, then everything's beautiful. Everything's beautiful, even loss. Why? Because when I lose something precious, I'm reminded that Jesus Christ lost his life so that I might find mine. So next time you lose something and it stings, embrace the pain and let that pain lead you to worship Jesus. Because Jesus died in your place for your sins because you're his favorite. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. This is why you can be full of hope. Because you're his favorite. And, of course, you're going to need all the hope you can get because the world is a dark place. Look what the wicked do in verses 10 through 12. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They've now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. They're like a lion eager to tear. And in fact, they're lurking in ambush. Doesn't that sound exactly like the world we know? Wicked, violent, deadly, surrounding us, pitiless, arrogant, bent on conquest, eager to destroy, and lurking in ambush. So, another application, another result of you being God's favorite. Because you're his favorite, you don't got to act like that. In fact, you should not act like that, nor do you need to fear those who do, because you know that the day's coming when God's going to open up a can of you-know-what on the wicked. David knows it too. I wish I could say it. Someday maybe in church, culture will get to the point where I could say, you know, God's going to open up a can of Balaam's you-know-what on the wicked. Don't know the story of Balaam. Read it, then you'll get the joke. Look what he says in verse 13. Here's where Todd gets in touch with us. Ooh, excitability. I'm trying not to shout. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Every time I get to read about sword-wielding Jesus as the best day of my life, I sit down so I don't lose my mind. 
Woo! Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Ooh, quiet down. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Okay? He's righteous. He's judging and he's choosing to make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. More than one crown because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I told you, he's the Logos. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, they're going to war dressed in white because they know they're not going to have to fight because that's how tough Jesus is, right? Jesus is so tough, he's going to win the war. You don't even have to get your white robe dirty. They're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. This is tatted up, sword-wielding Jesus. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's my favorite Jesus. Oh, I love that Jesus, and I'll acknowledge that it may be the testosterone in my manly system that causes me to love that picture of Jesus, but it's in the Bible, and I celebrate it. Tatted up, sword-wielding, tread the wicked in the winepress of his wrath, Jesus is coming back to make all things right. We all love to talk about the wolf lying down with the lamb. We all love to talk about us beating our swords into plowshares and not learning war anymore. I'm here to tell you, before the wolf lies down with the lamb and before the lion lies down with the calf, before he makes all things new in Revelation 21, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb that was slain, makes all things right in Revelation 19. Worship team, you can join me on stage. So with that Jesus in mind, with Jesus the victorious one, in Latin, Christus victor in mind, we respond this way. It's point number five, in case you've been keeping track. We keep playing the opposite game. In light of tatted up, sword-wielding, conquering Jesus, we keep playing the opposite game. Let's finish with verses 14 through 15. This is what the opposite game looks like. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now look, you have a choice. You can be like the people of the world. You know who the men of the world are in the Hebrew? It's going to blow your mind, hopefully. Literally, in the Hebrew, they're called the death-doomed. The death-doomed. So you can live like ordinary people, doomed to die, or you can live like God's favorite. Seems pretty clear. As for me, verse 15, 
I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, and this is speaking of resurrection, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the testimony of every Jesus-loving Christian. As for me, I'm going to see your face. I'm going to see it in righteousness. I'll be righteous because you made me righteous, and I'll see how righteous you are, which is why I'm righteous now. You look righteous. Jesus will say to you, so do you. So do you, baby. Welcome home. Enter into your rest. I built you a house. It's really nice. Where is it, Lord? You got to go further up and farther in. As for me, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. I will be satisfied in your picture. Yes. It's the same word that we see in Genesis 1. You can live like you're doomed to die and all is lost. Or... You can live like satisfaction is already yours because one day you're going to realize you look just like him. And why do you look just like him? Because not only are you his reflection, man, you're his favorite. <laughs> 